she's alive. Alive! Uh, hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and you're listening to Out Now Podcast. Hello. We are now recording. This is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Aaron. Me, Abe. It's a bit more Tarzan, I feel like. Oh, is it? Okay, <laughs> I apologize. I was trying to go for the, uh, you know, Frankenstein learning how to, how to talk. Abraham Weisbuehler over here. <laughs> um, how, Hi, Aaron, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I get, I, I'll, I, I'll stop doing the voice. I get I, it. I, I'm... I'm good. We're uh, recording this just days before Halloween. Indeed. Before yeah. the end of spooky season. <laughs> before the end of October. And like literally like this recording will this will have dropped on the same day we've recorded this. So this, this is, is true. Yeah. going to be as fresh as it gets. Mm-hmm. Unlike Frankenstein's body. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he got a little bit charred, so he's a little bit fresher, maybe. <laughs> Is that how it works, Abe? When you get charred, you're a little fresher. You know, it, it stays on the shelf a little bit longer. When you've Does got it? some, when you've got some hamburger meat, and you're like, "Well, it's turning a little green. Let me cook it up. It might last for another day." All right, I can go along with this premise. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. It is, um, it is nice let's, and let's get that weather report in there. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, keep going. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> Just the defaults. <laughs> uh, Out Now is a film podcast where Amy and I discuss new movies weekly. However, you also have to have these special bonus episodes with us. One of our fun commentary tracks are something completely different. And this is something completely different. This is uh, another entry in the, um, I guess, our contest winner <laughs> rounds of episodes yeah, that we do right. um, once a year, it seems, uh, where we have our, our guest is, uh, well, we'll have him talk about that. But essentially, this is the, the winning pick based on a contest that we are loosely associated with. Uh, but so for this week, we're talking The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein from director James Whale, the sequel to Frankenstein. And uh, joining us to discuss The Bride of Frankenstein, we have from Cal State Fullerton. He used to be the doctor of philosophy at the university, but uh, he was booted out, my dear Abe, for knowing too much. It's mm-hmm. Professor Mike Dillon. Yeah, I got got canceled. Yeah. <laughs> happening. Mike, how are you doing? Mike, hello. Not so bad. Hello. We've seen you so much this year, this month. We have. Yeah, too much. I didn't know that you were into making, stealing body parts and making people out of them. Eh, you know, pays the bills. <laughs> side hustle. It's a side hustle. Yeah. A small dinosaur bird looks to camera and says, it's a living. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, why, why are we talking about mods, uh, about uh, Bride of Frankenstein today? Right, so, so as you alluded to, this is a contest we run a couple times a year. I partner with a, a great horror convention called Monster Palooza, uh, which kindly partners with me to do a ticket giveaway for my students uh, at their uh, biannual con. <clears throat> uh, and to enter our contest, the students have to suggest a horror films that uh, fr- among which you guys make a selection for a potential future episode. And what I think we've we've done the birds. We've done. We had a whole we had a whole like creature so feature fly. thing going we had arachnophobia the fly the birds uh for sure a few others uh, we, we anyway. just we just recently did the lost boys lost and boy. fright night that's right right we did the shining last year i believe yeah i don't remember what the other what other films were in contention this year but you guys picked 
Bride of Frankenstein. Good choice. Yeah, thanks. The the uh, the Library of Congress certainly agrees. I didn't know that they had a say in Mike's contest. Hey, the film the film's in the National Film Registry based on the mm-hmm. library. Right. They select it's one of their selections. They uh, they do an annual convention too. Yeah, con- convention. <laughs> Congress of Palooza, where they uh, <laughs> they go over all their all the fun wacky stuff they do. And there's a weird film section in the back. I think it's actually called Congress Fest, but yeah, Congress Fest. Yeah, because <laughs> if they're anything, if Congress is anything, it's fun and wacky. This is true. Yeah, as we as we've seen the last couple of weeks. I like uh, Kong Chella a lot, but that got confused with the actual King Kong. <laughs> that got confused with King Kong Chella. Uh huh. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it just he's like that's like a shortened version of King Kong. That's Chella, where it like, brings a giant seashell to the to the festival. That's your this this giant seashell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> King Kong festival. Oh my god. Uh, a- yeah, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. <laughs> oh, you don't want to stop there and re- explain that more. <laughs> <King Kong Chella. laughs> well mike we appreciate you uh including us in your contest as well and let's oh, thank you guys yeah so it makes it fun i like i like to think that the winner of this is just rolling with all this material we're giving you before we get to the movie right now <laughs> it's like why why even talk about Brad frankenstein <laughs> i can hear that that winner groaning right now <laughs> oh and this is a morning episode we're just loose um <laughs> all right well what we're going to do is talk about the Bride of Frankenstein and break it down. Um, there's plenty to go over with this film. It is, it it, ha- it has a lot to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. I will say it is directed by James Well, as I mentioned. It stars Boris Karloff as the monster, Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, Ernest Thesiger as Doctor Septimus Pretorius, and Elsa Lancaster as Mary Shelley and the monster's mate. Mm. Uh, in the credits as monster's mate? Question mark. Who could play? Who could have played this character? Well, the first one does that too, I believe. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the monster is has like three question uh, marks. Uh, question mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although the poster does say Karloff on it, but I do like the idea. So one in the theater is like, wait, who is playing that monster? <laughs> I before we kind of get into the film, which we're gonna kind of break down the the plot and go over the various themes and what have you. I'm just curious if you guys have any like general like thoughts, like some general summations on the on the film in general of Brad Frankenstein. Like, where where do your What's your take on on Bride of Frankenstein? Oh, I'll, I'll be frank with you, Aaron. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. I actually really love this film. Um, I, I do think it's far superior to the original. Far superior. Far superior, absolutely. I mean, the original is great, um, but I do think this clearly has more going on, including a larger budget. Um, it's also more ambitious thematically, and mm-hmm. I, I think this one to me really points to a director who's using his expanded resources for a sequel to get away with more stuff i think the first frankenstein is fun but this is the one that really impresses me the more i go back to it uh every now and then i get the opportunity also gorgeous photography mm-hmm. so that that's my opener okay Abe, how about you yeah i find this to be thematically uh much more vibrant uh, the first one has elements of despair and uh, questions about life in itself too and this one delves a little bit more into it specifically around the monster uh, sort of going through some struggles with people throughout the village and even with uh, the blind man but i i enjoy the set designs in both of these in both uh is it 31 frankenstein yes 31 frankenstein and and uh th- which, which, what year is it five yeah yeah 35 bride of frankenstein the set designs are incredible here i i really enjoy I guess just how much effort that might have been put into this and still making it look pretty good for today's standards. 
So yeah, overall, I really enjoyed this movie. I think for its simplicity, but also that it 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 never really gets into these monsters are necessarily bad per se. It's always just a lot of misunderstanding. And I think that's sort of what kind of gets away in, in maybe later iterations where there's like, Frankenstein should be this monster that just kills people kind of recklessly. Uh, so yeah, I enjoy this movie. Yeah, when Robert De Niro like rips out Helena Bonham Carter's heart in the Kenneth Branagh version, you're not really thinking, yeah, he's a real sympathetic guy. <laughs> it's like, it's a little Did she brutal. deserve it? <laughs> I mean, she sold what a terrible question to ask. So, um, <laughs> But no, I, I, I mean, it's not a hot take to say I agree with you guys. Brian Frankenstein is pretty great, but yeah, no, it's um, it, it really is one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a fantastic movie for all the reasons you guys have already said, and we'll talk about it even more as we go through this. But uh, no, I um, my general takeaway is that I, I remember watching Frankenstein like in full for the first time when I was I don't know before high school at some point, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I put on Bride of Frankenstein. Because I hadn't seen either of those at that point. Again, it was when I was like fairly young, and it's like I was so impressed by like I didn't at that time I wasn't like familiar with the the general consensus on Bride. It's just more like I know there's Frankenstein movies out there. So watching Bride of Frankenstein at that time, I was like, so, so this is this is even better than the Frankenstein movie. <laughs> like I was so taken aback by how much I I found there to be the things you guys are saying as far as it just feels like a, a greater expansion off of what the first film was doing. And I already, I really liked the first film plenty. I still, I mean, I still do, but no, I, I'm a huge fan of Brad of Franks. I'm happy to, you know, go over it in more detail because yeah. it's certainly a film that's easily worth talking about, let alone inspire, hopefully inspiring others to see if they've ever seen these movies that make a combined total of two hours so it doesn't take much time of your life at all um <laughs> but uh, it's very easy to put on the 75 minute bride of frankenstein this is sure yeah money out of it so you, you said you'd done a bunch of research to prepare for right now right so did you happen to look up uh its budget since yeah. we, we've both been remarking on how good the production design is i like how i know this about looking at the answer it's something like it was initially budgeted at like 166 or something like that. Like what's a thousand, not million. Wow. Yeah. Uh, which was, was more an, than that. Yeah. Which was it? Well, it was an increase from the first, but the film ballooned over budget. So it oh, added like another hundred thousand on top of it. Uh, it's it, somehow it ends up at like four hundred thousand dollars. Like is okay. where the, the like the final budget is, and it shows. I mean, you can look at the movie and see like, yeah, it looks like it has. It's all made on set. It's all like it's a big universal production. It's it all. And like, you know, the set designs there and everything like it, it made use of the money and was a hit for Universal. So it paid off. So what those are like Hubert Hoover dollars, yeah. <laughs> Roosevelt dollars. What? what uh, Hoover what bucks. Is, Hoover bucks. Yeah. But so what does that translate to today? Um, 10 million. It's something like because like the I think the box office today is something like 33 million or something like that. I gotta look this up again for the inflation aspect of it. Simply must know. Yeah, made like sixteen million in profit, or like not in today's dollars. It made like nine hundred fifty thousand. In today's in dollars, it'd be about nine million. So it's about eight point nine million bucks for budget. For its budget, yeah, okay. Yeah. Which yeah. is still an incredible, incredible. This is like, uh, uh Blumhouse style, and it, and it was profitable. I mean, yeah. So what was the profit? It made a profit. It's it made a profit about nine hundred fifty thousand, which is like sixteen point one million as of okay. today. So like a mill. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the film overall, it it made two million, which would be like thirty three million today. So like it, it 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 doubled its budget essentially. Okay. And in, in a little more. So. Yeah, incredible. 
Well, yeah. I mean, it, it was. I, it was know, if you guys want to talk about, if you guys want to talk about inflation and and sort of the rise and fall of the Dow, then uh, happy we'll, to. But we'll, we'll we'll get Scott Mendelson on here. I yeah, think we're, we're a bit more of a S and P and Nasdaq folks, Mike. <laughs> I follow the Jim Canadian. Lear told me about all this stuff. I follow the Canadian indexes. <laughs> okay, actually, yeah. so the Nikkei is my favorite. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, the movie was profitable and it was well liked, but it was well reviewed. Um, okay, and I mean that that held that holds on to today. Uh, but getting into it, um, just to quickly recap Frankenstein, just to give us some context here, Henry Frankenstein and his hunchback assistant Fritz, mm-hmm. uh, they attempted to reanimate life using electrodes and all kinds of fancy gizmos. Uh, but when the fitting their reconstructed corpse with an abnormal brain by mistake, the resulting monster ends up more dangerous than anticipated, eventually leading to a lynch mob coming after it and leading to its apparent demise in a burning windmill. So that's basically Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it comes alive, has some laughs, and dies in a burning fire. Viet. <laughs> um, I forgot I forgot he's he's Henry Frankenstein. He's not Victor Frankenstein. He's not Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, he's Henry Frankenstein. Old Hank Frankenstein. Hank Frank? <laughs> Hank Frank, exactly. Hank Frank. Um, so we get to this movie. Yes, There's a, there is a prologue um, featuring um, Mary Shelley, uh, played by Elsa Lanchester, who also played the Bride Frankenstein, mm-hmm. um, and she is she's essentially written about Frankenstein. She's written the, her story, and um, she she's talking about why she made the story, only for the film to like pick up where everything left off. But so right at the right at the top here, we with this with this thing with Mary Shelley beyond the fact that it's like a fun callback to like the first film it it, it it does introduce like this narrative device where we have like this opening like let's bring some context to this story and the first film kind of has that too where you have like a guy coming out on stage being like hey everybody just to just to warn you there's some frightening stuff in here so be ready it's a, yeah it's a fun way to like get you ready for this this movie like has a, a fun way of doing that too but there was like a lot cut from this sequence apparently like it, this movie is 75 minutes it was originally like 90 and I know part of it was that Lanchester was showing too much cleavage and they wanted to like cut around mm. that. That was a big part of like what they wanted to cut down from this film uh, to meet some of the the code at the time. Any thoughts on the on the, the opening before we get to like the actual movie? I do like how it differs from Frankenstein. And I know that I think we're gonna be comparing or or not comparing, but I think we're gonna bring it up Frankenstein yeah. a lot. Um but I, I like how it differs because the first one is very much more of a like what you described there. Just like a an audience fun warning, mm-hmm. uh, and this one's a little bit more of well, let me give you the author of the previous work uh, in literary form, and kind of just set it up and say, you must continue with the story, Mary, and you know, dark and thunderous night, and she's kind of crocheting, and I kind of just enjoy that they kind of went with this what would be considered like like uh meta textual form of it which again when when i think about movies like this uh i don't necessarily think of them as being um ultra like uh, future proof and this is actually a really cool uh, move that they do yeah this this is initially going to be like a bookend thing there's going to be an epilogue involving in the first one in the no, in the at the end of this movie, okay. there's going to be a you know they have this opening. There's going to be a, like an epilogue at the end of Mary Shelley as well, but they cut that out. Um, so this doesn't like re- we don't return to these you know to seeing these people again. Mm-hmm. But it's still like a it's a it's an interesting way to to introduce the movie. And yeah, you're absolutely right as far as the kind of the the me- the meta element that's going on here as far as having the literal author of Frankenstein like introduce the movie that we're about to watch. It's an adaptation mm-hmm. 
a sequel to the adaptation of her movie. Yeah, I, I actually think this this frame narrative mm-hmm. is really key to understanding what's so subversive about this movie. Um, when you say that it was supposed to end with kind of returning uh, uh, back to Mary Shelley and having a bit of an epilogue, um, I didn't know that they had that planned and then cut it. But I, I think that still exists, right? Because the second half of this frame, the mm-hmm. epilogue, is the ending of the movie because Elsa Lanchester comes in for both, right? And so I I do think what happens in that opening scene is kind of key to understanding a lot going on in the film. The problem is I should probably withhold those thoughts until mm-hmm. we see the ending because the two things kind of need to be um, mm-hmm. juxtaposed. So so I'll jump in a second time when we reach the end of the film and then try to you know, theorize what I think the connection is between the opener and the and the closer. Okay. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is so Bride retcons the first movie, right? Pretty significantly. And so, I, I mean, I don't know what the thinking was, but I feel like having this sort of meta frame narrative sort of pop in at the beginning helps to kind of smooth that over. Oh, I see. Yeah, because there's a sense of, you know, oh, you know, the first film ends with the monster's demise and everything. And you have, is it Percy Shelley and whoever just kind of uh, talking to her about, oh, you know, what a what a what a tremendously ghoulish tale you you brought us. And and that's the point in which she decides, like, all right, all right, motherfuckers, I'm going to keep this going. <laughs> uh-huh. you, you guys, you guys, you know, don't think I have more in me. So I'm just going to kind of artificially keep the story going. And so she. The author literally kind of interjects into her own story, right? And to, to sort of continue continue her, her narrative along. Mm-hmm. So having that in there kind of serves this interesting secondary purpose that's kind of cheeky and fun, I think. Well, I, I think that definitely speaks to James Whale's regard for making this movie, too, where it's like he certainly put his all into it. He certainly didn't like not approve of what he was doing, but he I wouldn't say there was disdain for making a sequel or whatnot, but there was certainly like a almost like a Joe Dante Gremlins 2 type attitude. It's like, oh, you want a sequel to this, huh? Well, I'll show you this. And the movie is, it is funnier than the first movie, like easily. And it has, yeah, like you're mentioning this kind of cheeky attitude. It has that throughout. Like there's a lot of elements that, you know, it's it, it's almost like the movie's been made sarcastically to an extent at some points as far as like how it's regarding the, the ways things have evolved. Uh, even like the use of the the period setting is somewhat inconsistent, which seems by design. Like there's just aspects there where it feels like Whale is certainly injecting more, you know, more personality, honestly, into the film. It, it's it's a point of contention as well. So James Whale was an exceptionally rare person out there in that he was uh, openly gay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not that there weren't gay directors and and whatnot, but openly uh, was. Mm-hmm unusual at the time and so there's a lot of sort of interpretations of the film that assume that that's sort of where his sensibilities and his sort of subversiveness comes from i don't i don't myself necessarily think that him being a gay man requires that be the lens through which we view the film um but you the, know, arg- I mean, the arguments are there. But the argument is there. It's it's also maybe it's a difficult thing not to consider when assessing how kind of interesting and cheeky and and campy the camp uh, value the- for sure. Especially when we get to some of the characters we're going to meet uh, later on. I will note that it's probably a good time to recommend uh, Bill Condon's Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen as James Whale. Yeah, yeah. 
which is just a mm-hmm. really and, and uh, supporting supporting cast including Academy Award winner slash Killers of the Flower Moon destroyer Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how that's what he's known as now, I believe. <laughs> wow. from, uh, from James Whale to the Whale. <laughs> hey. <Hey-o. laughs> Did right. they make him give back his Academy Award? That'd be rude. What mine? No, no, no. Uh, Brendan Fraser. Oh. Yes, because they, you know that that section on Twitter just doesn't like him in that movie. Mm. So yeah, that that means return your Oscar. I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to this movie. Um, okay, so we're we're now back in 1899, the ripe old year of 1899, and villagers mm-hmm. are cheering the apparent death of the monster. But uh oh, the monster actually fell into a flood pit beneath a flooded pit beneath the the windmill. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, the the father of the little girl who the monster killed in the first movie, Hans. He wants to see the monster's bones. Uh, so he goes down there only for the monster to, to come up and strangle him. And he even kills Hans's wife as well. Things are not good for this little girl's family. Like they mm-hmm. were they were cursed. Mm-hmm. Um, so to stop here, uh, the thing I think is most noticeable is that uh, Karloff and the monster has like a new makeup design. Mm-hmm. Um, there you can see like in the design, there's there's burn scars from the whole windmill thing. Um, there are more clamps on his head eventually as we kind of get in, get further into this. Um, and he has like this, his hair has all been singed off from all the um, the fire as well. And even like in terms of the design, Karloff, who, you know, got more famous because of this, he uh, gained some weight. Uh, he's a he's a heavier man uh, now, which uh, is also reflected in like how they had to design the makeup for for this this round of the monster. And I, it's still very, it's still like an impressive thing to look at, especially in this early sequence where he has to get wet a lot. That doesn't seem like it's an easy thing to do, like sit and make up for five hours, knowing that you also have to like gain water and be submerged and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his uh, entry into the movie is again, if I'm comparing it to modern day movies, a lot of modern day movies kind of take this element uh, with uh, with their movies as well in uh, horror movies where the the big bad will kind of appear very slowly uh, on screen. But what I enjoy about this opening sequence is actually that the village is like, I think we did it. I think, yeah. I think we did it. Everybody's done. done. Yeah. Let's just go home. And only one family is like, no, I have to see this guy's body. Uh, and again, uh, his wife is just like, please don't do this because if you die, what am I going to do? And Frank is just like, oh, I'll solve that for you guys. Or the monster, Frankenstein the monster is like, I'll solve that for you guys. And even like what's it the like the housemaid or whatever sees him too, and she gives like a whoa big bug eyes and runs away. And that's I'm like, oh, this movie's more comedic. That's what we're doing here. This is this movie wants to have some fun. Yeah. That's arguably the best performance of the movie. Yes, you're not. They, that's um, what um what's her name? Her name uh, Cloris uh, Leachman like bases a lot of the character off in Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. So this this actress is called Una O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If she's Irish. Um, she's also in James Whale's Invisible Man. Um, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> but she's she's great. She's also in uh, there's, there's a movie I really love. It's a Billy Wilder movie called Witness for the Prosecution. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She oh, she that. the. OK, yeah, I, I know who she plays. OK, yeah. she's in that as well, which also incidentally has uh, Elsa Lanchester in it. Uh, yes, it does. So check, check, check out all of the above um, in terms of the makeup. I, I've read before maybe this was for the first frankenstein that the makeup was so extensive that karloff would sometimes just go home in it go to bed and then come back with the makeup still on just to cut down on like patching it up and repairing it would take just 
inordinately less time than putting it on from scratch. I heard that about the first one for sure. I I don't know if it got simpler later on or whatnot, but I do know like between he couldn't really sit. So they just like had him lean against a plank a lot of the time for uh, mm -hmm. when he's not well, filming the filming scenes. So the major difference with this one is that he talks in this film. Yeah. So some more of the so, yeah. more so. Well, does so he, he only grunts he says, and he we'll, we'll like, get there, but he's taught words. Yes. Yeah. But well, I mean, well, even in even in 31 Frankenstein, I think he says like one thing, right? Does he? I don't know. And now my memory is foggy. It's 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 grunting. I mean, okay. It's, okay. Well, the difference is, I mean, in the first film, his cheeks are really sunken in in the first one, and yeah. mm -hmm. whatever he has, a, he has he has a dental plate in his mouth to like help with the look and everything, and that's removed. That's removed for this one, so he can talk. Right. So so that's his cheeks. His face has a fuller look in this one, mainly because of the need of the script for for him to. To speak right and so they had to remove some of the prosthetics it's a mix so, of that and again he gained weight like his face was less sunken by this I movie <laughs> you know you make that money you get those mm -hmm. you get, get those dinners yeah so mike you, you're saying that you'd like the new look of it uh aside from all like the singe stuff from the fires there's also a uh, happiness to frankenstein monster uh well just going off of my memory that he does mm -hmm. look more sunken in in the first one and, he, he yeah, for sure he is yeah yeah and, and I mean the the what accounts for the difference is uh, something in the script, right? Not necessarily uh, advances in makeup design or anything like that. It's just because I, I mean, I think it's a way to justify certain things for sure. Um, but yeah, also the fact that yes, he's talking and he just various changes to like yeah, make this character fit for this movie, make this version of the monster fit for this movie. I wonder if there was a version of this that might have worked without having him, without giving him the the ability to speak. I kind of wonder if that. We can talk about when we get more to that, but I do think that as sure. that would that would negate some of the purpose of the of the of the hermit when we meet him, right? But we'll get there. Let's see what what's going on here. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, as the we'll, we'll okay, the monster after all the monster stuff happens, he fucks off for like twenty minutes in this movie. He's gone for a while. <laughs> He's dealing with Frankenstein, so Frankenstein's returned home to his fiance Elizabeth. Um, he's nursed back to health, and he renounces the monster's creation, though he still wants to unlock the secret of life and immortality. Uh, so we have Colin Clive back again. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth, who's only 17, um, making this movie. Um, wow. Colin Clive is 35. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, times, right? Um, the notable thing about Colin Clive, he is suffering from really bad alcoholisms. Uh, alcoholism. Uh, during this In time. real life or as a life, In real life. He, yeah, he, he, he dies, like, I think two years later after this movie. Wow. Like, yeah, he, he dies pretty young. Um. I will say, as far as his performance goes, I, especially watching these back to back, he certainly seems more toned down here, which I think is a way to counter the stuff with Pretorius that we're going to deal with soon enough. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, he's very big in the. It's not like he doesn't have his moments in this movie, but I think in the first movie, he's certainly very big. He's you know, from the excitement of making, you know, the monster and everything. But this movie, it feels like he's more toned down and like rounded as a character since he has somewhat more of an arc this time around given that he has like stakes in the game eventually and what have you mm -hmm. but um i i like i like what call i like colin clive quite a bit in these movies i think he's an interesting presence yeah i mean he seems more remorseful in this he, he kind sure. of understands the the i guess the action the consequences of his actions mm -hmm. in that you know elizabeth was kind of trapped with the monster in the previous film and now he's kind of reconciling with uh how the town has 
sort of been torn apart and he was a large planet. So it's it's very understandable. And that's why I asked you earlier, was he an alcoholic in the movie? Because it kind of plays that way sometimes too, where he's bedridden and, and very distraught at times and very much just um, reclusive. But um, yeah, it certainly seems as though he's sort of taken a turn for, oh, my moment of clarity happened after I created this monster and it was a mistake. Um, and I'm I'm still kind of worried about uh, some of the aftermath of it, but I'm also suffering from some uh, some PTSD, I guess. Of just he had a near death experience, you know, yeah. you know, he was thrown he was out of thrown the off from the, from the, <laughs> yeah, from the burning yeah. windmill by the you know by the the zombie he created. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I understand his quiet turn in this in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. It's tempting to watch his performance and wonder, you know, because he's in hysterics yeah. for, for large portions, especially the, of the first one, and to learn that he had this this disease mm-hmm. off camera kind of begs the question, you know, how much of that performance is inflected by that. But uh, just to agree with Abe a little bit too, and I mean, in the first film, his whole character dynamic is just I'm obsessed with my work, right. It's like no, love me. Let's have a wedding. It's like yeah, but my work. The work. That, that's, that's really about the extent of it. But with, with the second one, you do have this added baggage, right? Because he's guilt-ridden over this thing he's done, um, and nearly ended in catastrophe. Um, and so he's he he knows better this time around, right? Much better than than in the first one. And yet, and so the dynamic here is that you have this Pretorius character. Who we'll talk about but he's this sort of mephistopheles right who comes in and says now you know better now you know the dangers and you've learned your lessons about don't play god mm-hmm. but, and so so it, this is the film in which he really ought to just be open to retiring and and living uh, you know in wedded bliss and just going on with his life and yet this character comes in and like pulls him back pulls him back right and so the the central conflict of hank frankenstein uh, I think this one is a bit more interesting because he he goes back to this research despite knowing better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ironic thing is Pretorius pulls him out of living a normal life when it's like, oh, Frank- Frankenstein product. He could have finally gotten his degree because he's not actually a doctor. <laughs> he's just Henry Frankenstein. <laughs> like he, he he was too obsessed with his you know that work he was doing to actually get to become mm-hmm. a doctorate. So. Was this like his doctoral thesis? Yeah, I was like, is this is is yeah, is, is I'm sure like thesis? in the, the hypothetical world where everything pulls off and everything's you know, everything's wonderful. They probably could have taken they I'm sure they took copious notes. Um uh, they could have turned them in um and you know, you know, got the got the required things from the university, you know, got his credits, mm-hmm. you know, maybe took a couple extra like extracurriculars just to really fill out that you know, that whole course. This and, was like uh, a final project. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you gotta you know you can't you can't just reanimate two dead bodies and be like look i did it i'm a doctor now you gotta like do the you gotta do all the university work you know you gotta you gotta take you gotta take a couple sociology classes you gotta you gotta take one in business just to like have a little extra thing going <laughs> the good news is that in 31 frankenstein uh, he does ask, "What about our research?" And the guy's just like, "It's it's it's recorded. It's fine." Yeah. And, but that guy goes later. He goes on to get strangled to death by the monster, though. So, yeah. So. Who knows? It happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry visits the lab of his former former mentor, Doctor Pretorius, who shows him his homunculi. These jar-sized little people. Yeah, which are really incredible. fun. Sequence. This is a really fun sequence. This is where the movie gets felt really wild. 
um I, i'm sure there's things to talk about like the, like thematically what some of this stuff uh represents but i i um i the the work done to like make this look good like ab talk about like the idea of like how it matches up to films of the day like i think this is pretty seamless like for what like the rudimentary forms of what they're doing here to like mm-hmm. match like you know people they're filming and make it look as if they're just these in these small jars like mm-hmm. it's really good style like that's what i like about a lot of these universal monster movies like the invisible man for example it's like it's not like the tech has changed that much to not make this effect work so like mm-hmm. when i watch invisible man it's like they pulled that off like he's a guy he's running wrapping his bandages and he's nothing, there's nothing there it's great <laughs> he's looking at something like this and it's like yeah you got little people i believe that like there they are <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's 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 really cool like i think i think it's just a lot of great ingenuity yeah. that you know that's done basically practically and it's uh, it's really pretty ingenious 100 yeah, there's... oh go ahead Mike. I... You know, it's just, it's a great special effects sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I 100%. I, I watched this scene again because I watched the film recently and I was thinking to myself, how do they do this? <laughs> because there's a point where he picks up one of the king with forceps. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do they, but it looks so seamless and I can't really see the stitches, but yeah, good on, good on the editing and good on the, um, I guess green screen action, oh, so but this there's, is no, there's no green screen. It doesn't exist for years. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah but get, get on, get on the practical effect work uh, of this and the editing. But uh, I also want to add that this is also you've met Doctor Pretorius previously in the previous scene, but this is where it, it kind of goes like silly, and you've seen a lot of iterations of Doctor Pretorius in later movies. I think the one that I think about most often is the Doctor Sally's Doctor in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh huh where that guy's just like wacky and hilarious and weird. And Dr. Pretorius in this movie is the same way. He's got incredible hair. Um, they, uh, who's, <laughs> who's the, but you know, it's like, it's like, it's wavy and kind of jagged. And, and who's the actor that plays this person? Um, oh, what's it? Um, Ernest uh, Thesiger. Oh, Ernest. Okay. So Ernest, he's got a great face too. That is very, uh, it does reek of like, oh, this guy's got some, some weird ideas. Uh, so I like that the introduction of Dr. Pretorius isn't that he's he's sort of on the same level as uh, Hank Frank in that he kind of wants to do things because he's he's curious about the ingenuity uh, and engineering of of creating man, um, but more just like, no, he's a weird guy that just does weird experiments. Yeah, I, I've always wondered how much of Dr. Pretorius is in uh, Doc Brown. Oh, interesting. Oh, the easily inspired. Yeah, part, part, the hair too. Yeah, there's 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 plenty there. And then all the way, if we want to really go all, you know, contemporary times, like all the way to Rick and Morty, right? The yeah, Dr. Pretorius. Yeah. Probably even more so. Yeah. <laughs> Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Pretorius is like, especially like after the first film, which has another like senior doctor character who's like you know, boring by comparison. This guy's like, I am what you thought you were nuts, Henry. Look at me. And then he shows him his little people. Yeah. <laughs> and what's hilarious little... about the little the little figures is that he creates uh who's that Pope guy? He's like, I had to like get some order in their lives. So I let me create this other guy. It's like what what is happening here? So I mean, you mentioned green screen. It wouldn't have been a green screen because right. that technology comes later. But the right. principle is the same, right? Yes. To to photograph this against a black uh, a plate of some kind, and then yes, yeah, yeah, wrote, wrote what we would now call roto. Um, it, 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 I'm not entirely sure how this is achieved. I'm sure it's probably easy to look up, but there's like probably a Blu-ray feature of it somewhere. But there is, yeah, it means that at the very least they had to create these sort of 
two scale jars for the actors, the the actors who play the homunculi to sit in. And so, I mean, it's it's quite elaborate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, but yeah, um, the, I would say that the the fact that it's filmed in black and white, I think, helps also. That's easier to hide some of the stuff that's going on there. Yeah, I'm sure they were filmed against just like pitch black, uh, yeah, right. pitch black backgrounds um to make that seamless I, I bet if you go through it like frame by frame you'll start to see the the stitching a little bit mm-hmm. but um the other thing about pretorius is that so there's a lot of queer readings of this film yep oh i see yeah one, one yeah one because uh james whale uh was gay and mm-hmm. this uh, actor is gay clive uh clive, colin clive was rumored to possibly be like the a lot of the cast is uh you know it's people yeah. that whale's friend oh. are you know friendly with to begin with mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so some of the readings, um, obviously a lot of the camp sensibilities are rooted around Pretorius and that 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 characterization and that performance. But also there's been people who've interpreted it's like, well, he's this character. I mean, he he's clearly coded gay in, in one way or another. Um, in particular, the idea that uh that had it not been for Pretorius, right? Hank would have just sort of gone and and lived his life of wedded bliss and never really returned to all this. And yet Pretorius is this character who pulls Frankenstein away from his bride to tempt him back into this sort of perversity and this kind of mm-hmm. unnatural lifestyle of, 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 in this case, scientific experimentation, right? But, um, I mean, those are some of the things people point to when they say, like, yeah, he's kind of coded as a as a gay figure. Mm-hmm. Which is always, when you have, you know, James Whale being, you know, the author of this film, and he's essentially making this the, you know, the villainous aspect with Pretorius and even like how things end as far as where, where, Han- where, where Hank Frank ends up by the end of this. It's like, oh, he he ended up in the what's quote unquote, the good ending because he landed on the normal life compared to the dangerous, adventurous one that he was having, mm-hmm. you know, working with the, the other stuff. By the way, how does how does he entice Hank Frank to come back? Um does he, he just tell like, him I have an experiment that that I need your help with, kind of thing? He yeah, he just kind of. Well, first he shows him the homunculi. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. Like, oh yeah, um, that's like that. That's the next part of this thing. But I mean, it's essentially just kind of he, he explains what he wants to do, okay, um, right. and kind Cause, of because Hank Frank reluctantly goes to. It's join a reluctant him. thing, and then it becomes more forceful as we go I further see. into it. Right, but right, right. It's more of yeah. He just kind of provides some because like he. Like you mentioned, he's he's remorseful about what happened with with the monster, but he's still mm-hmm. like his goal is still to do this thing. Essentially, he still wants to like figure out immortality. So okay, but and you have your, your wacky doctor friend coming in, so like, guess what? I have little people. Also, you want to grow an artificial brain with me? No, no, make, make this stuff <laughs> that, I think that's what it was. Who yeah, says no to that maybe. proposition? Yeah. Okay. I mean, th- I mean, this is the scientific method. If we're being honest, right? You you do an experiment, it doesn't work out, and you think, okay, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Okay, tweak this and tweak that. Maybe this time it'll work, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's how we get the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a reverse of Nightmare bang bang boom. It's a reverse of Nightmare Before Christmas, where Jack's like, you know what? I tried Christmas, didn't work out. I'm going back to Halloween. No no harm, no foul. <laughs> where's Do- dr finkelstein is his name by the way the doctor where's dr the, finkelstein i got I some cool it. ideas for halloween i'm not going to apologize by the way i'm just going to go back to halloween <laughs> I, I tried for him. i tried yeah. fuck those kids they're scared I don't care. <laughs> they didn't want my severed heads i'll get santa back in there but i but i but i'm not apologizing that's, that's but you know what answer. he learned from his mistake 
He didn't make according to he didn't make any things. He's just like eh. no. It's more just like my <laughs> strengths are in Halloween Town, and I will be in Halloween Town. I gave it a good college try, but I again, as the movie tells us, he's not going to apologize. For it. <laughs> he sings a whole song. None of it's remorse for the fact that he ruined Christmas. He's just like eh, I'm not done. Yeah. Back to this movie. Pretorius yes. wants to work with Henry now to create a mate for the monster. Because naturally, he's like, <laughs> that's the obvious next step here. Uh, and the, that, which well, the... well, hang on. So, yeah. just to clarify, what Pretorius is uh, uh, assuming, right? His hypothesis, uh-huh. uh, his Pretoriothesis is Go on. <laughs> y- you did good. You created, you you reanimated a corpse and all that work. The problem was you gave it an inappropriate brain, right? Mm-hmm. You gave it Abby, Abby normal brain. Yes, Abby normal. Um, so let's try again, but this time, if we insert a brain that I've cultured somehow through through my half of the experiment, then we should be able to uh, have best of both, right? Is that the premise? It's the, yeah. He he's gonna grow an artificial. So. He's gonna grow an artificial brain, and Henry's gonna gather parts for the mate. He's gonna he's gonna find what he needs for the for this new version two sure. My my question always been, and it applies to the first film, if. Fritz just grabbed the right brain instead of the wrong one. Would it have worked fine? Would the monster get up and be like, "Oh, I'm very educated, actually, and I have lots of things to say about society"? Like, I mean, <laughs> The Simpsons explored this very same premise, and uh, I I think that they kind of came to the conclusion that probably. But also, uh, Fritz drops the brain, doesn't he? And yeah, I'm like, saying if he if he didn't fuck up, <laughs> yeah. if he got the right brain and they got it the first time, yeah. would there have been a monster, quote unquote, to begin with, or would it have been like, yeah, I'm I think humanity tall, would have cool. been, you know, a lot safer and cleaner and you know world world wars would have ended we'll do (laughs) i'd like to believe that but i'm curious if that's like if the movie is saying that the movie is saying that frankenstein's frankenstein's plan worked it just they had the wrong brain so that's what messed it up or like it's always going to be a dilemma i think it's actually in 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 reality i think it would always be the dilemma as we'll see later in this movie but but i i because i think there would still always be the question of um, it's almost like when we're creating AI bots or what have you. It's like, why was I created, kind of thing. And there's gonna be that search for, mm-hmm. for self. And I think, again, if we're if we're incorporating future movies, this is sort of what Prometheus and also, um, what was the movie after Alien Covenant kind of go into with the with the um, the Nexus droid. So I find that to be very fascinating. Of even if they got the right brain. Would this be a situation where I will be subservient to my master, or is it always going to be a situation where how was I made? Why why is why do I have so many stitches in my left arm? Who uh, am I? Yeah, exactly. Who am I? How did I get here? Yeah. So uh, that's that's uh, my reading on it. Mike, any thoughts on this? You had a brain transplant once, right? I did. Um, <laughs> curious to what extent the movies themselves sort of align with this thesis that, you know, well, if your brain comes from a criminal or like a crazy person, that is going to translate into uh, maleficence, basically, mm-hmm. when you're not the character, the the uh, the, the kind of person you're going to be. Because uh, I'm curious to what extent the films kind of endorse that idea. And like, you're, you're one step adjacent from like old school phrenology, right? That the shape of your skull yeah. determines intelligence and interesting completely debunked science um i'm not familiar enough with sort of when this type of research or when that line of thinking was basically abandoned by the scientific and medical community the first film still seems to suggest right that something went wrong with frankenstein's monster because of the just the 
the raw quality of the brain that they put in him. But I don't know. I don't know if that really extends to the second one. Maybe it does because Pretorius is like, no, if I can, if I can create a proper female brain, then the next monster, the mate, should be per- perfect, right? So but that alludes to a whole separate idea as far as Pretorius and the nature of his character, thematically speaking, and what it means to make an artificial brain. We don't get a lot of that in this movie as far as what he's actually doing beyond just saying that he's going to make a better brain as opposed to just finding a normal brain like they had and lost in the first movie. Well, well, I think the key thing to all Frankenstein narratives, right? And and this may be because, okay, so f- the Frankenstein's monster character has kind of been taken over in the pop culture, mainly more rooted in these films than how he's presented in the actual novel, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. Um in terms of the legacy, I mean, I mean, these movies are responsible for introducing the idea that like harnessing electricity is how the corpse gets reanimated. That's not in the novel. And I'm not sure to what point it's accepted in, in the culture that the monster has like greenish skin. Mm-hmm. Um, the poster art of the era doesn't really have a consistent palette. Sometimes he's green. Sometimes he's like kind of yellowish. And sometimes it's like set just... photos got out or what have you. Right. And they just knew that it was green. Uh, so, yes, yeah, a little unclear. Um you know, how much of what we imagine as the Frankenstein monster owes uh, way more from James Well than from Mary Shelley. But I think the key thing that's consistent across most Frankenstein-themed media is that the monster isn't evil, but mm-hmm. is understood, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like even like what you're saying, like even the in the novel by Mary Shelley, it's never that the monster was bad. It's actually just that it actually looks seeks more about the insecurities of man, uh, of humans, uh, human nature. And also around again their their need and willingness their need for one to feel like they control a lot of things, um, but yeah the monster was never pitted as like even even in the novel when the monster kills Frankenstein's uh, fiance it's an accident like it's it's not as though he did it on purpose um, and then again the townspeople kind of just run him off but um, it's never that Frankenstein's monster is. Uh, inherently an evil thing an evil being yeah there's always this thought that like all the universal monsters are like all actually sympathetic to some degree and it's like really frankenstein and like wolfman because it's a curse like they're the ones that are like actually sympathetic i don't it you can you can like dracula because he's you know sexy and cool and the evil man's just a dick so he's like an anti-hero i guess <laughs> to some people or whatever <laughs> and, uh, and then like i don't know creature of the black lagoon is just you know just wants some attention uh but like these two <laughs> The so Frankenstein's monster is kind of maybe best understood as sort of a frightened child, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it actually a really There's good a naivete parallel. to his existence. Yeah. He does accidentally toss this little girl into the lake and kill her um, mm-hmm. in the first one. But does he, uh, questioning Abe a little bit, when he kills Elizabeth, who is mm-hmm. Frankenstein's, or the Victor Frankenstein's, uh, at this point, bride to be, yeah, yeah. in the novel, so, right? Right. Yeah. Is that accidental? Because I, I seem to remember he's trying to coerce Victor Frankenstein into making him a mate, and kills him, kills the people around him as an incentive, right? To... Yeah, I can't remember. That, that's how the Brana version goes, and that one tries to be pretty faithful to the book. Because my but, brain is remembering like wooden planks and. Like uh, I guess uh, the feeling of an accident, but I could be wrong. Now I'm gonna look this up as as we're speaking. Um, I think I remember the Brana version being one of the most faithful ones, except yeah. the one 
major difference is that uh, yes, Frankenstein murders his wife, but he then uses the wife as a subject to create the bride in yeah. the broader. That's not how it goes in the novel. I think it, he does yeah. a bride version, but it's not. It's not his. Uh, his it, own yeah. It, yeah. It, it, well, the problem is that the movie's not very good, but it, like it does those things and like alters the ending a bit as well, as far as kind of. Anyway, going. anyway, um, all of this is to say, um, you know, as Frankenstein is meant, to, the monster is meant to be the sort of sympathetic character ultimately. Yeah. Then I feel like both films, even though they rest on this premise of like, yeah, you get an abnormal brain, you're going to get an abnormal creature. It kind of rejects both um, of the of of that thesis, just because in the first one, yes, there's the quote the quote unquote abnormal brain that goes into the monster, and that's why the monster is is perhaps has this murderous instinct. But then once you realize that no, this this is a misunderstood creature, and one that elicits a certain amount of empathy, then perhaps that's not exactly what explains what's going on with the creature. And then you take that into the second film in which you have this mad scientist who says, no, I can actually create a brain from scratch. You just supply me the, the raw materials of the body and I'll take care of the brain. Um, and this time we'll get it right. But then not to skip ahead uh, too abruptly to the end, but that experiment also fails. Right. Right. Because the bride is not uh, complicit and docile the way that they had in, uh, that these two male scientists had assumed she would be. Mm -hmm. And so Pretorius is working hypothesis of like how to how to create a, a human brain that's ultimately manageable and predictable is a complete wash at the end of this film as well. Well, yeah. that's why I wonder if because it's Pretorius, still it's still an artificial brain, uh, you know, like what made by two men, as you keep pointing out you know, to make a, you know, a a female monster or female, you know, creation. I, I do wonder if there's like, you know, extra commentary going in on that level as well. Mm. I'd also like to interject, uh, Mike, you are right. I I was mistaken. The creature does strangle Elizabeth with intent. So my bad. <laughs> he does have a bit more. Um, he's pretty vicious. He was mad. <laughs> yeah, he was. He's he's angry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, but that, that novel is like a good hundred years before the film. It's like early yeah. 1800s. And so that's the time frame in which I think you could get away with just saying like, why is he so murderous and, and impulsive and, and violent? It's like, well, because we gave him a criminal brain. It's like, that's the I kind see. of pseudoscience that I think a hundred years later, people are just aren't really quite on board with anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why the um, the film versions reinterpret things a little bit more that, that the Frankenstein's monster is more of a misunderstood outsider um than anything else and that that i feel like speaks more to the politics of when the films were made and also if you're so inclined potentially a read into the politics of the openly gay director oh for sure i mean it's hard to yeah. not see that with that kind of context in mind or at least consider it mm -hmm. um all right we'll move forward a bit because we'll get there's still more of this stuff we can talk mm -hmm. about. But um, let's see. Meanwhile, while Henry's gathering parts for you know bride, uh, the monster uh, saves a young shepherdess from drowning, uh, but then is uh, attacked and shot by some hunters. Uh, he's then captured. He's trussed to a pole and he's hauled off to a dungeon. Uh, but monster being monster, he uh, breaks through his chains and he escapes. So we get a lot of a. Uh, Nice little subplot of the monster. <laughs> he's, he's dealing with being alive in the town and people still going after him. Yeah, I'm surprised that, um, I, again, I think this is actually still going back to 
what we were just talking about a second ago where there's this strange empathy with the monster um he's never really trying to quote unquote hurt anybody even the the little girl that drowns i think that he was trying to see if she also floats like the ro- the rose petals or whatever petals that they're playing with in yeah. the uh in the in the garden area if unfortunate the, uh, if incident the ja- if the jackass boys did the same thing they'd be heroes you know years later i mean we man <laughs> would be just yeah, if they threw uh, Wee man across the water <laughs> yeah. but um i i find it to be fascinating because uh uh it's just the continuation of it but there's still like fear because this person doesn't look like anybody in the town and again if this is a coded message for uh, being open or or out um it certainly is a situation where socially it's just unacceptable right um, and I, there's just a lot of readings from it, but I go back to what I, what I was sort of remarking on in our general thoughts. Like, I just really like this production design. <laughs> like there's yeah. like this, there's like this waterfall lake thing and Aaron, I'm surprised that you're like, it's all indoors. I'm like, what <laughs> they built this. This is incredible stuff. Good work. Yeah. They got, they got sets, sets for days. <laughs> was, was that section actually a set? Do we know for sure? I, I mean if it it was on the lot so they could there's they could film it there's an out there's outdoor areas of the lot where they could have made oh, stuff good point, yeah. still that's, I was like that's... oh they filmed on location in the woods right <laughs> but I guess not so there's um there's a great academic article it's an essay I can't remember where it's published but the the author is Elizabeth Young mm-hmm. and the title of the article is called here comes the bride mm-hmm. it's uh I haven't revisited that in in a while but it's it's a really great distillation of um, sort of different political allegories and, and social allegories going on in the film. And in particular, sort of intersection between or sort of the film's racial politics and gender politics. And in the case of like Dr. Pretorius, it's queer politics. Um, and the argument that's applied generally to this entire sequence of the movie is that it's entirely about race because when you have images of like an angry mob, basically a lynch mob going after this sort of large lumbering man mm-hmm. at the time this movie was made would have been unmistakable what it was referring to is particularly because we're talking about the era of like Jim Crow, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 1930s, 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, particularly since both scenes include moments in which misunderstood or not Frankenstein's monster is perceived to be menacing to women. And the idea that sort of black men represent a particular sexual threat to you know virginal white women is is an age old racist trope, right? It's it's what instigates things in Birth of a Nation and so on. Mm-hmm. So the film is clearly sort of alluding to these tropes as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I can certainly see that. Um, especially uh, again, we were sort of discussing uh, the menacing threat of just a looming figure. And it's like, well, if we don't understand what this person is or who this person is, we'll just, again, consider them a, a, a blanket threat. And that's it's actually a fascinating read into the subject matter. Yeah, there's a way to look at this as sort of a general fear of otherness. And of course, horror does this really well. And right. so uh, Frank, the, the Frankenstein's monster needs to be um, viewed as a threat hunted down and and eliminated as a threat because he's so different and and monstrous looking so that that's a that that can be allegorically applied generally to any any notion of otherness you know the foreigner the mm-hmm. the gay man or whatever but in the particular imagery that's being invoked in this sequence 
I think alludes most closely to just like racist lynch mobs, um, given given when the film is in release as well. And so this, so so there's a kind of a, a generalized fear of otherness that I think is being explored in both films, but more particularly in this one. But it also seems to kind of sort of bob in and out of not otherness in a general sort of way, but like here here's a specific type of otherness that gets persecuted in our society. And then perhaps at other points, here's a different type of otherness that that's the subject of abuse. And so yeah. that's that's what I mean when I say this film is just more ambitious thematically. It's just got a lot going on. And maybe it's not always consistent and coherent um, because this is a, a, a racial allegory that seems to kind of duck into the film for this entire segment, but then it's maybe less applicable to other segments. So it's it's a little bit bobbing and weaving but i mean i I, it's fascinating yeah i find that actually is a really cool read mostly because i was always viewing this movie and the monster from the inside out like oh this monster feels lost and uh misunderstood and it's really fascinating looking from the outside in of just well what do these towns people and and how does this view how do you view this from a, a social perspective historical social perspective as well Pretty cool, actually. I've never really thought about it. Uh, two sides, sort of like two sides of the same coin, kind of thing. But it's actually there. There is actually a lot of subtext to this movie when when you're given the time frame in which it's being released. There's the other thing too we haven't talked about with this scene specifically, which is a lot of Christian imagery. I mean, you have the monster literally cruci- you know, on a on mm-hmm. a on a crucifix. You know, he's, he's looking like a figure of Christ huh. um, as he's kind of you know hauled off uh, to the. Um, to the dungeon and we'll get to the next scenes involving the hermit but there's certainly implications there involving last supper type things and Mm -hmm. and what have you um however that plays in that plays a role into all of this it's it's not not there in Mm -hmm. terms just like the the many other things that we're mentioning Mm -hmm. right so that make that kind of reframes the monster as a christ-like figure who's being Mm -hmm. persecuted right fascinating Yeah. yeah I will note that one of the hunters is played by John Carradine. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, father of a uh, David and Keith Carradine, mm-hmm. uh, and Walter Brennan is in this scene too. In, uh, one of these like lynch mob figures, he's uh, mm-hmm. he's in there. Father of Keith and David Brennan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. All right. Well, the next thing we have here: the monster then meets an old blind hermit. Uh, who thanks God for giving him a friend. Uh, this man needed a friend. Uh, the old man t- uh, then te- he goes on to teach the monster some basic English, and they uh, share a meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hermit is played by O.P. Hedgy, uh, who Whale really wanted to be in this movie for whatever reason. He like literally waited for him to finish production on like some RKO movie for him to be to film the scenes that he wanted him in here. Um, and um, we've talked about this a little bit already, but Karloff has to speak now. Uh, he's taught words and what have you. Um, he was not happy with this idea. He did not want the monster to speak. Uh, he thought this would like ruin the mystique of, of the Frankenstein monster character. He, he didn't think that this was the best way to go. Um, but I do, I, I think for one thing, the tone of this movie, I think makes it work uh, quite well. I also think that evolving the character makes a lot of sense. If you're going to keep having this monster around and you need to give him some more agency. I do think the, you know, it's not like he's speaking in, you know, iambic pentameter or anything like that, but he's like, he, you know, he has some words to use. I think it adds to just the straight, the oddity of his existence and what he's going through. Um, 
I kind of feel like Karloff has an argument, though. I I don't Um, disagree that he has an argument. I think it suits this film. It it does, but at the same time, and I was alluding to this earlier, I feel like I, I do wonder whether or not you could have achieved what the scene is meant to achieve without having Frankenstein's monster talk. Right now, now that would ultimately speak to Karloff's range as an actor. To what extent can he communicate everything that the character is going through? Is this sort of delight, surprise, um, a sense of bliss, um, mm-hmm. all these things that that are new sensations and new emotions for this character? Is there a way that that could have been conveyed through body language and and through the face rather than having him actually like you know, <laughs> good, good, good. Um, <laughs> You know, then also like tonally it does fit, but it does spill things a little bit into Goofy. Yes, um, yeah. we already met the homunculi. I think we're well in the Goofy. <laughs> so so we, we are we are in a movie in which a little bit of Goofy is is perfectly consistent. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I wonder if there's a version of this that would have had a certain dramatic impact precisely because Frankenstein's monster can only communicate through certain cues rather than actually vocalizing his his delight at a situation right that could have been that there's a there's an alternate universe in which that i think could have worked i think yeah, yeah. i think so too because i was i was also sort of taken aback when uh the monster starts speaking and again it's it's not good speaking he's, he's not using full sentences he's uh it is kind of just using words here and there that it's, it's picking up um and going back to 1931 frankenstein that scene with the girl is very profound in that there's no words being used by the monster instead just facial reactions and this understanding of seeing this flower and and the beauty of it um the lighting is also really helpful in that scene too but um yeah i, I could see what you're saying because Aaron and i just talked about um no one will save you a couple weeks ago and that that movie has largely zero dialogue zero spoken words um and I it's it comes across in the filmmaking that there's a lot of emotions to get out of a scene. But I don't know how I necessarily feel, because like we has also just mentioned, this movie is kind of it's kind of hilarious at times. And so even when the monster is speaking, the monster has wine and, and laughs about how good wine is and, and how uh, smoking is. Um, I don't know if he enjoys it, but there's a point where. I think he stops after he takes a puff and he's just like, I don't know what's happening right now. So it's kind of hilarious sometimes too. I I would go as far as to say, like, like I get as far as like alternate universe, like sure, is there a version of this movie that could exist this way? Sure, it'd be whatever movie that is. But I mean, this, I think by allowing him this aspect of his character, it helps this relationship we have with this hermit for the brief time that we have it. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that, and it also, I think speaks to the, the, the queer reading that we're talking about like right here you have essentially a same-sex relationship going on between the monster and this old man who are you know have become they're settled into this life for a brief period where they're having sharing meals together and they're relating to each other i think it gives that opportunity to have this man teach this monster things and like make him more i don't know respectable or what happened you know i don't want to say domesticated that's weird but like i think there's something there that you can't necessarily achieve if the old man just simply is kind to the monster and like has him settle down without speaking Hmm. i'd also add i think by the end of this movie which we'll obviously get to the fact that he is more evolved compared to his new mate i think that goes a long way compared to him just reacting as he normally does as the monster who 
would just grunt and stuff at this new thing. I think the that's fact true. That he, I mean, yeah, I he think, does. Uh, he, he 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 develops the ability to articulate wants, right? And that's crucial mm-hmm. to. And yeah, so if he just it, it, it's like um it's like Buzz Lightyear meeting uh Proto Buzz in Toy Story two and being like, was I used to be that way? I used to be this mm. <laughs> this, this toy that couldn't think for itself. I, I think there's something there, and the you know the fact you know, for the limited time we actually have with the Bride of Frankenstein, I think the fact that Frankenstein is fought, is more evolved than she is makes it makes an impact that I think could be lesser than. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the situation itself, uh, Aaron, you mentioned earlier that there was might have been like a a Christ-like reading in the scene. Oh uh, yeah, uh, I mean yeah, it, it just kind of okay. goes further with the um, uh, the the hermit has like he has a crucifix on his wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 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 have bread and wine and like it's 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 a last supper type of situation mm. given what's happening next mm-hmm. um and, and as we know jesus christ loved a cigar after a yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean but i think but, he learned that from stand by me nothing better than a cigarette after a meal much like uh, pretorius's weakness as he explains gin uh, cigars and wine it's right? his only weakness <laughs> <laughs> I think he says it twice. Like it's my cigars are my only weakness. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but yeah, I, this scene just... is interesting because uh, he's playing Ave Maria pretty well. And then there's also scenes where I'm like, okay, you you can locate the the monster too easily for being a blind man. I will also note that this scene is obviously inspiration for the Gene Hackman scene in Young Frankenstein, aka the best movie cameo of all time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, need to throw that in there. And this is also like directly from the book, uh, the original book. The, the like a lot of the, you know this movie is like subplot stuff from the book that wasn't yeah. in the first movie, um, and yeah. like just evolved in its own way to make its own separate film, which has happened in in multiple uh, adaptations before or in in the future as well. One that comes to mind specifically is Jurassic Park versus The Lost World, where The Lost World actually has a lot more text from the original Jurassic Park book, but. Um, it actually just doesn't work out from a movie movie adaptation. Yeah, the, the Lost World proved that. Yeah, it's okay to not have all the things from the book sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> Neverending Story does this too. The uh, Neverending Story Part Two is actually just the second half of the novel that just they didn't bother addressing. I didn't know time. that. There's a novel. Yeah, it's it's great. Oh my god, go! It's it's by Michael End. Uh, Neverending Story novel. If you read it, you'll see just how much J.K. Rowling plagiarizes from it for um, Harry Potter stuff. Wow. How long I am very curious about this now. How long is that novel? It, uh, never, it never ends, ends Aaron. Um, Thank you. Thank you, A, for yeah. picking that oh. up. <laughs> Mike and I were both on, Mike and I were together on that. You're, st- you're still reading it. <laughs> yeah. It changes with the reader. Have you not seen the movie? Not in a long time because it's not a favorite. Um. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, after this. Uh, the monster uh, does the thing that he does, uh, but uh oh, the hunters are back and they stumble upon the two, and the monster's like, ah, and he attacks them, um, and you know, fire burns and accidentally burns down the cottage. Uh, the hunters are able to get that that uh that old hermit away from there though. But uh, yeah, sad times. The the, the um their fun uh adventure as a couple eating meals together ends uh, in mm-hmm. fire, as things are wont to do in this town. Mm-hmm. Where does the monster go after this? I forget. Uh, that's the next. I can just get into it. The monster yeah. then hides in another crypt, uh, where he oh, happens. That's to, right. He happens to spy Doctor Pretorius. By the way, Pretorius Septimus Pretorius means a uh, um, uh, royal seven in Latin, uh, mm-hmm. or you can some interpret that as the seven deadly sins. Uh, oh, to get the nature oh. of his character. But yeah, they spy Pretorius breaking in, breaking open a grave. Uh, the monster then reveals himself. 
he has some supper and he learns of Pretorius's plans to create a mate for him. That's right. Yeah. And this is the scene where Pretorius is telling his assistant to turn all the lights out uh, and then invites the monster in, right? Mm-hmm. And the assistant okay. is Carl, who is once again played by Dwight. Well, he's played by Dwight Fry, who played Fritz in the first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Carl doesn't have a hunchback. He just has a bad haircut this time around. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's a terrible haircut. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh... Uh, um, what's the character's, what's the actor's name again? Uh, Dwight Fry. Fry, so Dwight, don't call me Igor Fry. Yeah. <laughs> Igor, which, you know, is a common thing associated with Frankenstein, not introduced till the next one, till son, till son of Frankenstein. That's when we first get an Igor. Hmm. But it's funny how much that came into, like, the public consciousness as well. They're like, yeah, Igor, that's that classic right, that's Frankenstein character. Assistant. It's like, well, yeah. no, not really, not until a while. Right. Uh, Inter- interesting that Frankenstein's monster doesn't get the idea in his head that what he needs is a is a you know a hetero life partner mm-hmm. until Pretorius gives him the idea, right? Yep. Or rather, he's just come from this sort of momentary happiness with a roommate, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the joy of having a companion, right? Someone to walk through this world with you, mm-hmm. which he got from the hermit. And Pretorius is the one who kind of takes that need for companionship and need for intimacy that Frankenstein's monster has just gotten a taste of. And he's the one who kind of coerces a heteronormative reading into it by saying like, oh, no, no, if you're if you want a life partner, what you need is a a heterosexual mate. That's Um, fascinating. Yeah, because I think that he just says friend. I think Frankenstein's like, I I want a friend or something. Or he doesn't say I want a friend, but he doesn't know the word female or woman. He just knows the word friend. So, yeah. Yeah. So what what Frankenstein's after, what the monster is after is a, a friend, which in this context seems like an all purpose word for just someone to be Partner. by my side. Yeah, yeah. that understands Partner, and doesn't right. and doesn't judge the monster. And yeah, and it's Pretorius who's the one who's like, well, I have just the thing you need. It's it's called wife. Fascinating. Uh-huh. That, that is kind of fascinating, right? Yeah, I never, I never uh, put that together. Of just let me, let me incept you with the idea that what you actually need is a spouse, um, and not just uh, anybody who would, would kind of just look out for you and be um, a good person and give you food and shelter and and housing and again not judge you. Just some uh... just really jumping to conclusions that Pretorius. No, oh, yeah, he is. He, he he's an eccentric guy, but he has some basic ideas of what things where, where things should be. <laughs> um, some basic trivia here: Dwight Fry, who I mentioned, is Carl and Fritz, and the he's um Renfield in Dracula. Oh, okay. So and, he's been in the universe. Yeah, he's been here. A lot, a lot of these actors kind of revisit things. Um, the next film, by the way, Son of Frankenstein. Um, it does have. I mean, it has Boris Korloff again. It has Bela Lugosi as Igor. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, Basil, what? Yeah, and then Basil Rathbone is um. Uh, the son of Frankenstein. Um, as far as Pretorius goes, um, they actually wanted Bela Lugosi to play this character, who um, we don't know why he uh, turned it down at the time. Um, and they also invited Claude Rains, the Invisible Man, to play um, a Pretorius, but he was oh. busy, uh, he was busy on another production. Okay, it's just some fun facts there. All right, um, what's going on next? Okay, get some more plot stuff here. Meanwhile, Henry and Elizabeth are now married. Um, and he no longer wants to assist Pretorius. He's he's saying, "No, I don't. No, no more body stuff. <laughs> time, mm-hmm. to, time to settle in, <laughs> make some young bodies of my own, as in children." Um, but uh, Pretorius uh, calls on the monster, who demands Henry Hank Frank to help, uh, but to no avail. So 
Pretorius then has the monster kidnap Elizabeth, forcing Henry to participate uh, in yes. this uh, okay. act of creating the bride. Yeah, and this is where, uh, again, his reluctance shows much more, but this is also where, uh, again, the the idea of just let me create a good brain, and I also need a strong heart, because I think they try the experiment once and it fails, and he's like, no, 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 this this the person that we had here just wasn't, the body wasn't good enough, so go get me somebody else, and that's where our our, our guy, uh, Fry, just was like, uh, the police had a woman, and uh, she died in police custody. And it's just like, that's actually not what happened. He just, he just like kidnaps and murders a person on the street. Pretty, uh, pretty dark stuff. Yeah. Pretty, uh, <laughs> not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> what someone say about that. <laughs> it's also the direction in the plot. You kind of have to, they've painted themselves into a corner a little bit, which is that, okay, well, if we are presenting the monster as inherently empathetic and misunderstood, um, and we want to sort of feel his pain, then you do have to create a plot device as to like what nudges him toward kidnapping Elizabeth, right? Because the Frankenstein who we have been uh, spending time with up until this point of the plot is not someone who would have gone and done that of his own volition. In the novel, Frankenstein's monster is like really calculating and evil and and kind of putting all these things into motion himself but in this one it's pretorius who has to put the idea in his head right hey go do this thing which he wouldn't have thought to do on his own because there's no there's no malice in this version of the monster yeah that's a good point yeah i don't think you would understand what that that notion even is so yeah um i will note that they're just uh because i think like scenes were deleted out of this area of the film but there's a lot of censorship in this movie as i mentioned before um, the body count was apparently 21 um, at one point versus the 10 that die in this movie. So there's a lot more bloodshed that happened. And I'd imagine it was probably around this area of the film where like the monster's kind of loose and like Pretorius is doing stuff and and um, um, uh, Carl is doing stuff. I imagine there's aspects that were like trimmed down to make the movie more, I don't know, <laughs> less vicious <laughs> than what was going on. Um, there's even an alternate ending we can talk about later as well where more people died um but next up we have uh henry returning to the lab he gets a bit more excited about the work just because he's well he's at least he's in his elements uh despite you know the whole you know blackmail of it all uh and he completes the bride's body um that's why he's excited <laughs> yeah well he's, he's finishing the work um they go through like the whole process mm-hmm. you see the electricity strike uh it animates the new body um you know they go like in this we can talk about more about this stuff, but this is where like the production design is just like at a whole, you know, at an 11, uh, mm-hmm. we're seeing all kinds of stuff happening, but like, just to wrap up this little part here, um, the body is wrapped up like a mummy. Compared to the first words back, just kind of like strapped down. This one's like completely wrapped up and everything. She's lowered and they uh, start removing the bandages. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the look of this stuff is great. And there's a lot of like, I really love the shadow work in both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I really love the way they like emphasize like the the scale of these sets by using the sense of darkness that's around them. Mm-hmm. You can just kind of tell how big the I whole thing see. is because yeah. there's you know shadows in all the corners and all the and just ways to like make it look interesting. A lot of Dutch angles here, of course. There's a lot of like just cool stuff taking place to like emphasize the 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 eccentricity of these labs that they've been created. They're not just you know random doctor labs. They're these these you know castles with all kinds of stuff in them essentially and it's i think it's just really cool really cool the way they like are able to make this stuff work and feel unique and feel like yeah we're watching a cool monster movie here's all the stuff that comes with it right yeah, yeah the scene, the, 
um, oh yeah go ahead really iconic score as well oh yeah, Fra- yeah. franz uh um franz waxman um does the score here and yeah it is it's a really good score waxy sure. old waxy yeah there's also uh the shot that that lives in my brain is the dissolve edit yeah from unwrapping the bandages into just here she is I'm like this is a really cool shot uh transition that you guys had here also i'd like to add there's a lot of this movie, it, even 31 Frankenstein, a lot of really good insert shots, by the way. Um, so, yeah, there's all the shot in here where they're just taking out the bandages and then she's just standing up. Uh, eyes open is a really cool shot. I, I really like that. Although we will have to wonder if there's so much editing going on, um, how much of the use of insert shots was sort of planned in advance or is what resulted from the need to really cut out stuff. Oh, interesting question. Yeah, because I thought it was just uh, let's be cool and and ahead of our time and just do a bunch of inserts. I mean, I think uh, that's the, that's the resulting effect, right? But mm-hmm. kind of wonder what if if there's a story as to how they ended up with the edit they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where's uh, the monster at this point, Aaron? He's about to come, but I'll, I will note that uh, Elsa Lanchester, uh, she's five four. Uh, it took three hours to put on her makeup, and they put her on stilts to make her seven feet tall. <laughs> so they wow. make her pretty big. Yeah. She's got a big old dress, so you can't really see it. But yeah, uh-huh. I mean, they uh, they heightened her up. Um, so yeah, we see this new creation. We see the the bride of Frankenstein, never referred to as such. We see the monster's mate. Um, the monster sees her, and here we go. Uh, we have less than five minutes to spend with this character before the movie ends. But the monster's yeah. like, yeah, that's right. Actually, this this is like the last fifteen minutes of the movie. <laughs> Like like all of it, like this right here is the last like five minutes of the movie. Yeah, exactly. like, there's yeah, no yeah. time spent with the river. Uh, but it the monster... is surprising how little the bride is actually in in the bride. Of it is because right. she's an iconic character and a, a considered a classic monster. Yet she does not kill anybody. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't do anything beyond what I'm about to say. I mean, it's a very limited role, and that speaks to just how effective I think this movie and even this performance, as small as it is, is. I mean, it does the job of, you know, it's. 90 years later we're talking about it in the way we are but the monster asks her friend and the bride in return screams at him and then rejects yeah. him completely um the monster is uh not happy about this and then begins to rampage the lab mm-hmm. um so yeah all that work <laughs> and all that work on the monster's part to better himself as a person and uh did not pay off in the way he was hoping the monster's been to therapy bro yeah he, he tried yeah dried but uh not having it yeah um, but yeah the bride the 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 monster's mate just a i mean obviously just an iconic look but like you know with the hair and the white streak in it mm-hmm. um they it it seems like like based on like the mummy wrap they're going for it seems like they have this like egyptian themed idea going on for this character compared to the you know the the big broad version that's the, the you know the monster is um but it it's very striking for sure especially with the black and white cinematography where it just really shows the you know, the black hair and the white streak and the white face and how angular and whatnot. It, like, it just, it really, it leaves an impression for sure. Yeah. Yeah, really good character design. Um, iconic. I also didn't realize that uh, it, it was such a small screen time. This is sort of reminiscent of things like Bruce and Jaws, I guess, or Hannibal Lecter. Um, sure. And very uh, does she show she appears in later films i'm, I'm guessing no no <laughs> never ever again okay i mean wow. like there's ver- like there's other frankenstein movies no yeah yeah like yeah. the character is kind of a thing but like this iteration of this character you know none of the sequels to this movie wow 
I like this is it. This just is... really seared in people's brains then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a reoccurring image because it's such a unique design, right. but yeah, we don't Yeah. We don't get more from uh, Brad Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, as far as like the ending goes, I felt that it was actually fairly rushed for a movie that it's kind of taking its time to breathe a little bit and, and give me some more insights into the monster and how the townspeople are sort of viewing this monster. And in this ending, it, it does, it gets to a point where I think that I am a little confused as to how quickly the monster has learned about just empathy uh, and, and kind of letting things go and how it itself has to sort of self-sacrifice uh, just to destroy everything that has been created because I guess it, it understands that it's a monster at this point. So that's that's my my largest criticism is just, wow, you guys got to this point um, and it was all kind of fun times sometimes and it was a little bit risky sometimes and weird, but it just uh, it abruptly just comes to an end um, very rapidly. Well, here, Mike, before you start talking, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the last two things I have here, which is uh, Henry... As the monsters rampage through the lab, Henry joins Elizabeth and is told by the monster, "Go, you live. Go, you stay. We we belong dead." Uh, the uh, the two, the you know Henry and Elizabeth, they flee. They get out of there. The bride hisses because you know why not. And then the monster looks at the convenient lever um, that you know when you pull it, it destroys the lab. Because you know everybody, every lab has one of those. It's one got of the, an abort switch. Come on, one of those levers that's not protected by anything at all that you can just pull in case you need to destroy your lab. Well, Frankenstein's monster is also like seven feet tall, so it's very high up there. I'm guessing. Oh, that's what it was. So there you yeah. go. It's like, that's usually, a protection mechanism. Usually, they need a ladder. Need a ladder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't count on Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> and so he pulls the lever, uh, which destroys the whole castle, and everyone dies. You know, except for Frankenstein and, and Elizabeth. Presumably, you know, presumably the bride, the monster, and Pretorius are all dead now. And based mm-hmm. on the sequels, most of that's true. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's where we well, leave things off. The, the thing that merits clarification is when he says, no, you stay because we belong dead. He doesn't say that to the bride. He says that to Pretorius. Yes, he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so he's basically recognizing that Pretorius is, there's some kind of, something unnatural or perverse about him that needs to be vanquished along with whatever it is I am. Right, and he does. He does pull the lever with tears in his eyes as well. There's something noticeable as well. I yes, mean, there's he, he cries uh, twice in this movie. One of them is like I think with the old man, and then the other time is this time where you see like a teardrop rolling down his face. If I hear what you're saying, as far as like there's a lot that happens in the last couple minutes here, but it's like I I don't know what else you'd add. I don't I don't I know, know. What, else, what else you'd throw in. There. I mean, he's just rampaging in the lab and feeling shitty because you know the bride just rejected him. So it's like. I get it. Like, what a <laughs> what a what a flying off the handle guy! Like, how dare yeah, he? No. Yeah. Well, but yeah, I think I think the larger emotional. message is that very, he's like, like a child, like we mentioned. It's exactly <laughs> like it's like you know, uh, incel bad. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's like maybe I'll just destroy this whole castle, then you'll be sorry. <laughs> you should have asked me for mine, but as to my mate. <laughs> But uh, no, I, I hear what you're saying there too because it it's just uh, a science project gone awry, both of them, I guess. But um, yeah, the bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's bride, uh, the monster's bride, is just I, I probably gonna maybe be a menace too. So let's just end things uh, 
before it gets too crazy and the, and the whole town has to suffer. Maybe you can't let this 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 Pretorius guy get out there and start showing off his new creation. And who, knows, <laughs> who knows what she's capable of? She's hissing. Can't and... let him be strutting down the streets. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, so go back I, to your I, other point now. You wanted to bring up about Mary Shelley. And all yes. This. So to this earlier point about like how little the bride is actually featured in the movie sort of titled after her mm-hmm. like I, I would never begrudge anybody seeing this movie now given how how iconic this character is and how long it's lived on as like halloween costumes and things like that to actually see how little screen time she gets like i can see how people would maybe find that a little anticlimactic but to to go back to like the, the significance of this right <clears throat> and the fact that she she doesn't speak as well i think this is all really directly plugged into the opening scene and then the two bookend each other because what what essentially is happening, right? So she, Mary Shelley, is in a room with uh, her husband Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, uh-huh. right? And there is a sort of yeah, we're there's a boys' club sort of we're we're real authors and look at you, you, you this like dainty little thing who went and made a horror book. Oh, look at you! So there's kind of like a condescending mansplainy yeah. thing going on in that scene, and Mary Shelley says, "All right, well let me let me let me spin you another yarn." Yeah. And so within the the universe of the movie, you have Mary Shelley telling these two guys off by uh, by narrating this story that culminates in a scene in which a woman is created by these two men and immediately rejects them both and says, I don't have the power to articulate how I'm feeling. I don't have the power of speech, but I do know that this ain't right. Uh-huh. And you guys are basically created me for the purposes of being compelled to be someone's mate and i'm not on board with this and the fact that mary shelley in the logic of this universe casts herself as the bride in her telling of the story i think that's crazy significant what a fun read that's i mean that's that's really cool it's got to be deliberate right i mean this is where the sort of james whaleness of it comes in in terms Uh of the presentations of gender politics it's crazy subversive and i think this is the key to understanding the sort of the the entire reason why the movie begins with that frame huh yeah yeah yeah. i like that yeah i go along with that for sure there's like a giant f you to you guys i was i I was thinking about that when i was just reading up like you know some you know doing my research on this movie and thinking Mm -hmm. of like an epilogue being cut and i was like oh what what you just said it's like well whale's a smart enough guy that makes so much sense as far as like what he's offering and like why if like if there's stuff that needs to go in this movie how do you how do you wrap something like this up and yes you can speak to the you know how quickly things go as far as the bride's actually concerned but yeah when you think back to the beginning like you're saying yeah no i really like the way that you can match those together that's that's actually that's a, a solid take for sure well it's also you know because you alluded to christian thematics going on like sort of there, there's mm-hmm. crucifixion imagery throughout there's a last supper uh, metaphor going on but also i mean i feel like this is the biggest mockery of religion right because you have these two characters who basically created a woman for the sole purpose. You're, hey, we just made you. Your purpose is to now be the mate for this guy who you've never met. So uh, we're assuming you're going to be okay with this. And she's absolutely not okay with it, right? Right. Um, this is essentially how Eve was created. So yeah, we we made you because Adam was lonely. So we plucked a rib and, and just created you. Um, you're down with this, right? This is basically kind of a 
a similar narrative in which, but but in this one, the woman doesn't go along with it. She says like, hell no, I don't know you guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't owe you anything. Um, that, that, that feels really ahead of its time. Yeah, I like that. Like, I didn't ask to be here. Let me just fuck shit up. No, but just like, you know, you two guys are not in any position to dictate what you, you know, just because you're responsible for giving me life, that doesn't mean that my agency ends there. Right. right? Yeah, so, yeah. Whole cloth now, region. Now that you're speaking about it with the book ends too, yeah, it's actually really fun how she's just like, let me uh, tell these two guys this long, elaborate, like I just imagine that she's she spent like hours telling these guys her story about the the continuation of Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and then at the end there, she's just like, and you know, uh, the bride. Yeah, go for yourselves. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, which is really fun. <laughs> In conclusion, you two, you know, jerk bros can go fuck yourself. Yeah, you I'm going to go to bed and you guys can think about the meaning of this story, but see ya. I dig it. More power to Mary Shelley. So we've reached the end of the movie. We've reached the end of the film. Any other uh, thoughts on uh, Bride of Frankenstein? Anything else you want to comment on? Uh, I miss the old universal plane that goes around the globe uh, in their logo. Okay. <laughs> um, pretty fun stuff. But no, I, I think on the whole, it's um, it's a really nice companion piece to this because uh, to Thirty One Frankenstein. Uh, you see it a lot still these days. The the movie that does come to mind, or the series that does come to mind, is Halloween One and Two, uh, where it's direct continuation. Um, I guess. Both versions. Uh, actually, does um, Rob Zombie's version do that too? Uh, sort of. It okay. it it does a fake out where it gives you the next couple minutes, but then it's like, oh, actually, that was a dream. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'm more specific about some, speaking about seventy eight and also twenty eighteen. Um, but no, yeah, no, it's it's a really nice like double feature kind of thing. What Mike? Yeah, but weirdly, the Rob Zombie Halloween two does allude to this in a way because. Doesn't Michael Myers speak in his Halloween too? And there was some controversy. He speaks once. <laughs> yes. Huh. He he, oh, yells no, he he goes without his mask. He goes right? without his mask for yeah, he's a, he's basically a bearded hobo for most of the movie. Uh-huh. Right. But I remembered some people obviously really hating that because it's such a departure from canon, but also some really defended it as a sort of an interesting new direction to give Michael Myers. Oh, I absolutely think Rob Zombie's Halloween too is the superior film and a one of the better Halloween sequels. It is hmm. very much a it's the the constant comparison I've always had is that it is very much the Batman Returns to Batman as far as this is a Rob Zombie movie. There is no there, the first Batman is linked up to Batman by IP and whatnot. Batman Returns is very much Tim Burton being like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to. That's what Rob Zombie's Halloween Two feels like, mm-hmm. regardless of how much you like it or not. Uh, I, I do think it's successful in being a, its own thing that really shakes up the. It's only Halloween by nature of it still has this character in it, but it's very much operating its own thing. Lens, mm-hmm. which I mean, I think Bride of Frankenstein, it's taking plot lines from the book and what have you, and like, but I do think the like as we've spoken to, Whale feels so much more present in trying to really put something else in there. Uh, in the same way that I alluded to, like Gremlins two earlier, there's just such a an interesting energy in this movie that's not like it's unprecedented in the first film i mean frankenstein's a classic for a good reason but i do think ray frankenstein just has it's it feels so clear that it's like a a a natural and strong evolution of the first film as far as what we can really do with this premise and where to go from there well it's it's as if michael keaton went and said uh we're doing a second one you want to get nuts yeah (laughs) (laughs) nuts
And then they said it a third time when Michael Keaton came back and it's like, I, I guess maybe we wanted to get nuts, but not really. <laughs> so this is what the fifth time you've had me on in the last month or so to discuss various horror cinema. Something like that. Too many times. Yeah. I, I mean, we love you Too many. Times. <laughs> um, but to me, this really is the kind of film that points to what's great about the genre. Um, even though it's scare value is dated. I, I don't think anyone would be genuinely frightened by this film anymore, but it's exemplary of how horror operates on the level of allegory when it's done well. Um, you know, that's the first part. And the second reason is because horror has this lowbrow reputation, right? It allows people to slip stuff in and settle in sneaky ways. And in, in the context of this film being made, um, it would have been combed over by the production code. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, the edits that eventually kind of shorten the film have a direct relationship to those notes from the PCA as well. Hmm. Um, but what horror, because this is such a B film, it's like 70 minutes as a genre film, uh, the censors aren't sort of looking at this with the, the level of scrutiny that they would look at like a major Hollywood A-level film with big stars in it. And so what you end up getting is a sort of a built-in deniability because if anyone were to say, hey, hey, this uh, racial stuff is a little on the nose or like, yeah, some of the gender representations or the anti-Christian mockery is a little on the nose, the director can simply say, what do you mean? It's just a lumbering monster. Yeah. Right. And so you can get away with messaging on a deeper allegorical level while simultaneously disavowing that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you get what I think is the best of horror, which is that it's not about shock value. Right. It's more about intellectual value yeah. and self the space to address a deeper set of topics and themes and ideas. Yeah. And as you alluded to earlier, horror, I think we've all said this at one point on the podcast and in our lives, uh, horror is is really good at, at sort of taking social messages and encapsulating them in movies that you could kind of run away with a lot of different meanings. And obviously the movie that comes to mind when you guys are earlier mentioning maybe the, the coded uh, Jim Crow era stuff here was uh, Mad Living Dead, sure. uh, where, yeah, that's that's a movie about just uh, people's fear of, uh, I guess, black men in general, but also just um, it has a really sad ending because nobody believed the black guy. And it's just... Uh, um, it can be seen as like a zombie movie. So when when people are being asked about it, it's like, oh yeah, no, it's just about zombies and and uh, how they're they're trying to eat people's brains. And in reality, I think there's just a really really good message, uh, or not good, but I think there's like a really strong message of this is what happens when people have, I guess, a fundamental misunderstanding of of how human compassion really works. Um, and this is these are the accidents that that will happen um, there's also an accessibility factor where if you tell somebody uh, we're going to make a movie that's you know dealing with uh, christian imagery and queer readings and whatever her monkey lie represents and it's mm -hmm. that as a straightforward drama that you can watch you might be, be like yeah maybe i'll watch that maybe i'll watch it once or what have you so put say say i'm making bride of frankenstein you're gonna watch the movie over and over again and maybe over time you evolve and learn things that about that that you didn't realize at the time or maybe you realized it the first time but there's still that reaction you can get regardless of how far you're reading into it that just makes you want to keep revisiting the film and maybe you take on new reads. Same with Night of the Living Dead, for example. If you want to watch a zombie movie, watch a zombie movie. Watch Night of the Living Dead. If you want to watch a movie that has ideas on its mind, watch Night of the Living Dead. It has ideas on its mind. Like It's right. it's it's, it's a two-hander in that sense where you can layer things in there um, either subtly or not, but you're still giving the audience something that they can you know 
mount on top of and be like, yeah, I'm down with this for sure. Uh, it's a zombie movie. Why not? Or, you know, it's a movie about uh, little gremlins or uh, whatever. It's a movie about um, um, uh, a, a, a guy in a leather face chasing after me with a chainsaw. Nothing else. Or maybe mm-hmm. I has to do with the Vietnam War. Like it's, it you know, that that propulsion to a lot of watch horror uh, certainly speaks to so many audiences. That's why we keep getting horror movies. And so the fact that filmmakers um, are happy to, you know, lace them with various things um, that's on their mind or subjectively on their mind that just happen to be in the film. Um, it's a benefit. It's a benefit to what the power of film can do for an audience. Right. It's also, it's also not to shortchange, you know, uh, these are films that, <clears throat> you know, Night of the Living Dead, if someone were if someone were to say, listen, I just want to enjoy a fun, gory, scary zombie film. I don't want to just sort of invest in the allegorical readings and I don't want to intellectualize the whole project. I just want to, you know, have a good time and eat popcorn. Um, these are films that lend themselves toward that sort of casual viewership as well. But if that's the case, they really don't stand the test of time unless they're just simply well made, regardless of the kind of intellectual readings. Also that important. Yes. This is true. Yes. So. Yeah. It's in no way to shortchange a movie like Bride of Frankenstein. It it stands up um, not only because the film kind of makes itself available to different readings and different um, uh, connections to social issues that linger with us to this day. So every new generation can kind of uh, remine the movie for for important allegorical value that may or may not be pertinent to the world we live in. But if they don't want to do that, it nonetheless continues to stand the test of time simply because it just looks fantastic yes yeah that's a great point for sure well i think we've talked plenty about the bride of frankenstein and i'm certainly happy with the conversation we've had because i think we've attacked a lot of the really fascinating topics about the film while also showering praise on what a great movie it is Um, can i ask a question yeah yes curious apart from these sort of early karloff films do either of you have like favorite um, or definitive depictions of the monster. Uh, so Frankenstein in film. Um, what's it, the... outside of film, but but I, I suppose mainly film. I, I suppose Young Frankenstein is the most iconic. Outside I mean, of mm-hmm. I mean, yes, uh, Young Frankenstein. Um, there's what is it? It's uh, it's one of the Hammer ones that I I quite enjoy. Oh, which one is it? Let me see if I can find those. Uh, while you're looking that up, I, I I largely just have two, which is um Herman Munster and also Lurch. <laughs> Rob Zombie's Herman Munster? No, no, actually, that's actually not bad. It, that movie is actually not. Uh, I think it knows what it's doing, even though it got like a lot of poor reviews. But I think it it really, uh, Rob Zombie really keyed in on how the show was and made a movie, and people were just like, "What the fuck is this?" Uh, and I think you have to really be in the mindset of you kind of have to have seen the original series and known how goofy that series might have been too to have fun with this one. I think the only issue with that movie is Rob Zombie at some point should have said, maybe my monster's adaptation shouldn't be two hours. Um, but aside from that, too. I think the movie is quite good. The Curse of Frankenstein is what I'm trying to think of with, uh, with Peter Cushing. Hmm. Um, that one's quite good. Um, I... I, it's been a really long time since I've seen the Brana version. I think I only saw it once. Is it is it really bad? I I watched it fairly recently. It's not like I think it's terrible by any means. It's just it doesn't it doesn't hit well. It's it it how it, it feels like it's multiple steps away from where it needs to be to be a better to be on the level of like Frank of of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, like in that oh. era, or like Sleepy Hollow, like that era of adult 
horror films that are like taking the classics and doing them again their own way. Like it, it feels similar to like Wolf with Jack Nicholson, where it's like, yeah, I get yeah. what you're doing, but like, eh, it's just not there. And I think that's partially because I don't think Brana's the director we needed for that. Um, either that or he's not the actor we needed for that because he's doing a lot of like, look at me in my ripped open shirt as Frankenstein. I'm such a hunk, aren't I? And it's like, okay, Frank, <laughs> and it's Brana. Let's put this away. It was really setting himself to be a, a Pierrot in the, in the later years. So, you and, know. you know, Brooklyn Monster, Fred De Niro, like he does the job, but I, it's just, it's a, are you looking at me? It's a, it's a weird movie. I just, I'm not, I'm not huge on it. Sure. It has it was its the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. It has its fans, but I'm just not the, the biggest on it. Won't line up to rewatch it then. <laughs> I mean, I want just having recently watched it. I'm like, I could wait another 20 years. <laughs> to yeah. Watch this again. Um, Mike, I did mean, you have a go-to? Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, of course. Oh, uh, my go to is I think I've already been mentioned. I think I'll take the opportunity to um, plug a, a film by a friend of mine that I know Aaron is uh, uh, positive on as well. Came out earlier this year. It's called The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. Yep. Oh, which, yeah. It takes the Frankenstein narrative and sets it in like a poor black neighborhood, which, you know, of course, leans into a lot of allegorical content uh, straight up straight up the bat and so it's it's quite good it's a great um indie film so it's obviously working yeah working within a constrained budget but um given given um how obviously strained they were it's it's quite good yeah it it is very good i uh i interviewed bomani the director for that one as well and uh, i rewatched that movie this week actually in preparation for this episode um i was uh very happy to keep watching that movie because it is very good it's on shutter right now you can easily watch it if you have shutter or amc plus and and you heard he's doing the sequel now, right? The Bride of the Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. <laughs> <laughs> if it's we a, get a Kickstarter going, that it's might a, happen. It's a long title, but I'm I'm down to I'm down to see what yeah. happens. Uh, <laughs> I know, um, but yeah, no. Pl- there's certainly plenty of Frankenstein story. I mean, Guillermo del Toro is finally going to make his Frankenstein movie. Uh, with this cast, Oscar Isaac, Andrew Garfield, Mia Goth, and uh, Christoph Waltz, which is like, all right, let's see what this is going to be. <laughs> right, all right. I feel like he's been sort of teasing that for a while. He has. It's, it's been on his long list of, here's all the things that I'm going to do. And um, yeah, he's he's finally, Netflix has been a great haven for him. They, they are giving him the money to do the things he wants. So. Fantastic. Oh, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me guess, is Doug Jones going to play the monster? No. Um, You're tall. Uh, uh, I believe it's, is it Oscar Isaac? That's the monster. It's either Oscar Isaac or Garfield. I think it's Oscar Isaac. I can't wait monster. for the for the monologue. Um, no, Doug Jones will play. You know, like he's he's gonna be the villager that shoots him and then dies a horrific death by being split apart. Well, well, no, he'll, be, he'll he'll be all of the homunculi. <laughs> that actually makes more sense. Well, the thing is, like Pretorius is not a character in the novel, right? But. Um, no, and, and Del Toro is very much making an adaptation of the novel. So like, yeah, Doug Jones is Pretorius? Question mark. Well, in the you know in the Netflix sequel, <laughs> like sure, let's see what happens. Cool. But uh, no, I'm I'm automatically excited for a Grand Theft Auto Frankenstein movie. So that's that's mm-hmm. fine by me. Yeah, I Garfield is Garfield is the monster. Really, Andrew Garfield? Yeah, Andrew Garfield's the monster. I mean, he's gone through a lot of pain. So <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can leave it there uh, for this round of Monster Palooza winning entries in our discussions of the films we're in. Um, but with all that said, uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode about Now Theron and Abe. You can find more of my work on my personal blog, thecodezeek.com. Everything I do ends up over there. I write for We Live Entertainment for movie reviews and Wise Blue for Blu ray and Criterion reviews. And I'm on Twitter, Aaron's PS4. Abe? 
You can find more friends up on my Instagram, abe.mua and twitter.com slash swallowsmoose. Hashtag smoke, drink. <laughs> uh, Mike, anything you'd like to plug? Nope, just uh, happy Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween indeed, for sure. Uh, but all the other episodes about now, Thursday, about iTunes, Audible, Audio Boom, Spotify, Stitcher. Anywhere you can find the internet. <laughs> exactly. And we're on all the socials as well. Uh, follow us on all those places. And uh, again, leave us a rating review on iTunes. That'd be great. Thanks so much in advance. May pop us up in the old iTunes charts. Mike, thank you very much, very much for Thank joining you, us. Mike. Hi. Congrats to your winner. Yeah, I should have looked up his name, actually. <laughs> his name is Boris Barloff. Junior. J- junior. Uh, but yeah, glad to do this as always with you, Mike. This is a lot of fun. Happy to talk about this movie. And um, yeah, we'll be back soon enough. I mean, this is a busy week for us. We have. This, uh, I mean, it's a bit. It's been a busy month. It's been a busy month for sure. We got all. We please check out all our horror specials that we've been doing all month long. Those have been all a lot of fun. Mike's on yeah. a couple of those. Uh, we have our Exorcist commentary coming this week. We have our very anticipated review of Five Nights at Freddy's coming at some point this as week a special as well. bonus. Yeah, box office hit Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, but yeah, that's gonna do it for this week's episode. So until next time, so long and goodbye.